Let us pray. <coughs> Father God, we ask that you take this passage, this precious word, and through it, speak new life into our lives. Give us new eyes to see this passage afresh, to see more of the grandeur of the salvation established for the beginning of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last time we were in chapter 14, we began, we were considering the fact that this was a great challenge to the faith because this was a people who were surrounded by the reality of death. They were surrounded by a city that they could not traverse on their own. They were uh, in one direction, and in another direction, they had the wilderness in which they did not have the ability to be sustained in. They would have even been hunted down by the final obstacle in no way. Egyptians, the Egyptian army, the forces of people were had to come up against them. And we, and we talked a little bit about that reality that we had lost since yesterday. Rationally saved by faith, but faith implies that God will at times create obstacles for us uh, that we need to trust in Him in the midst of. And we saw that throughout the community in the first 15 verses, the people failed. The people failed to keep away, the people failed to trust in the Lord. And then the Lord is still going to be gracious in this moment because grace delivers us even from more unfaithfulness. But we saw and we close on verse 15, our most peculiar verse, because we talked about that view there, and if there was one person who did not fall into the sin of faithfulness at the critical hour of test, at the critical trial, the critical in this instance, it was Moses. And Moses, who I had earlier in chapter 5, I believe, uh, that I might be all, uh, had the people named to many lamenting, bemoaning, complaining about God, and he had a faith that could not sustain. And not only his faith, that the course of these plays over the matter of time has run to the point where. He was able to stand firm and to encourage the people to stand firm. And at that verse 15, God does this peculiar thing with that word view there. And see, he blames Moses as if Moses had been the one complaining, as if Moses had been the faithless one. And then says that after that, this is the way forward. And so we're going to look at the way forward. And yet there's a chapter in the Bible we know it well, in the first ten verses of which I actually want us to look at before we really dive into this passage. And you can find this passage on page one of your deep Bible. See, we're in a passage that has God hovering, God protecting, God in the midst of his creation. We're in a passage that has light and darkness. We're in a passage that must 
water has been separated. And we know so much about this passage, and some of it be wrong, because we don't care really about this passage, because of the picture on the front of your bulletin. But we know so much of this passage, I think often we miss something that the ancient Hebrew would have missed. That this is a story of new creation. That there are images within Exodus chapter 14, especially as we start reading some verse. 15 to 31, there are images that parallel the creation itself. And so I just want to read the first 10 verses of the Bible, and I want you to intentionally start to think about what we just started reading, start to think of the connections between this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness was called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were not the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, and second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place, and let dry land and it was so that God called the dry land and earth, and the waters that were gathered together they called the seas. God saw that it was good. I should never dare say spoil the end of Exodus. That from this chapter to the final chapter of Exodus is in one sense a retelling aspects of the story of creation because God is creating a new creation. We need to remember that God is a carpenter. God is a creator. God is a craftsman. God has intentionality behind the very words he uses in the word of God. And so now let us go forward in Exodus 14, moving on to the images of the very beginning of the Bible itself. In verse 16, we can see that the plan of salvation that began with an innocent man being blamed for the sins of the people now has a lifting up and a stretching out. The star, that is the starting point of the plan in redeeming these people. It involves this piece of wood, a lifting up and a stretching out of his hands. That's the set of instructions. They are essential to begin separating the waters from the waters, to begin a new creation, to begin to create a narrow path, a narrow way of salvation of God's design. And the ground will be dry. It will be walkable for those who go through it. But as we can see in verse 17, what God is opening up is this narrow new path of of deliverance, a new creation for his people, to give new life in the face of death, 
as the brothers separate, not everyone occurring in verse 17 is going to be able to walk through this narrow path. Even will not be able to walk through this narrow path of salvation. No broken are the waters that will fall down on those who hate to go on over the narrow path. And he will crush them with the force of his power. You know, it's been a year and a half since we last read the Hubbard Catechism and worship I'm like what we're doing in the song, but I nearly feel bad for the Hubbard Catechism, especially um, when it talks about the Lord's Prayer and the passage by Kingdom Come. It points out something I think we failed to remember. When we're praying for God's good kingdom to come, we're asking that God destroys the different kingdom. We're asking that actually God destroys Satan and the evil which follows him. You know, that we actually desire to see something destroyed and supplanted by good. We often forget that this passage in Exodus 14 is actually a reminder of what this time to I've heard some people talk about this passage, and they think that God who would do this is cruel. That it is cruel for God to destroy these Egyptian soldiers in this moment. But if you feel that way, and you say the words that are, you're in conflict with yourself. Because for God to give an answer one way to embarrass that evil needs to be fully dealt with. Evil must be judged. Evil must be destroyed. You're not going to have a world of peace until evil in the death is bringing is that both totally and finally. There's that trite song which I dislike, and I hope the lyrics don't stay with you today. I apologize if they do. I think it's terrible we want So I'm sorry in advance, hopefully the final song will stick in your head instead. But it goes, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And all that hymn-liner wasn't necessarily trying to, to make a godless song. The problem is within you and me. The problem is within the structures of evil. And people in the country, if you're even studying downstairs, is found in their own waters. And so if we really want there to be peace on earth, it has to be beginning with God. It begins with God dealing with the problem of evil. He needs to judge it. And for those who do not want to judge, those who want to escape evil, Good news! The Lord offers the narrow path of salvation. But those who will not receive the narrow path, who reject the narrow path, who refuse to go down the narrow path, they will be destroyed in the judgment of God. And in verse 17, as God is talking about the destruction of the heart and hearts of his enemies, God says, that will result in being glorified over them. Now, there are two things that need to be said about not being glorified in this moment. It's not that God has lost any glory, or God's like a beggar seeking glory. The glory is actually part of the attributes of God, it's part of the essence of God. In one sense, to simplify this, God is saying to the people, You're struggling at this moment, and they have been. To see in faithfulness who I am, what kind of God I am. And through this Exodus moment, through this deliverance, both those who are having a heart set on evil 
and those who I deliver, I will show all of them an aspect of my glory. They'll know me better in one sense for this work. And so God is telling us, He's setting up the destruction of those who oppose Him to show more of His glory. So we'll have a better idea of who God is, better idea of both salvation and judgment. To put this in another light, in the Bible it's been said there are roughly 2,930 different characters or entities within it. And when people want to just make this a humanistic book or just maybe a moralistic book, a book of moral compass and something Bible is indifferent to morality, it is not morality for it is. That's really not what the Bible is about. It's not about humanity first and foremost. It's about when humanity comes up against God in the Bible, whether they be redeemed humanity or unredeemed humanity, and the primary purpose of their coming up against God in Scripture is so that they might know more about who this God has revealed himself to be. So whether we're talking about Moses, whether we're talking about Israelites, on uh, right now, on the wrong side of the Red Sea, longing for the better side of the Red Sea, we're talking about the Egyptians. All of them are going to know more about God through this encounter. And when we start theoretically understanding more of who God is, we begin to learn to appreciate more about the glory of God. Also, notice in verse 18, even the Egyptian doctors, they see the judgments they place. They will have to bend the knee. They will have to, one thing, acknowledge Yahweh as God. They'll know what this glory because everyone can see it, even in judgment, they'll have to acknowledge it. Both the redeemed of the narrow path and the unredeemed who will get crushed under the lady judgment, they both will come to them. And at this moment, something incredible happens. The combination of verses 19 and 20, it is one of the moments I most long to see what is going on in all of Scripture. I'd love to know what verses 19 and 20 appear to look like. First of all, let's consider verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind him. Now, let's more when the book of Exodus, or the book of Genesis has quite a bit of the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, as we've talked about, sometimes can be an angel's word messenger. It sometimes can be a messenger God sends, but sometimes, even in the Old Testament, the messenger is the iron. And we saw that actually in the burning bush, I believe it was chapter 3, verse 2, where the burning bush was not just this burning bush, but there was this angelic presence within the burning And it's possible that even in the most odd sacramental rite ever practiced, uh, the Old Testament sacramental rite of circumcision, uh, that when the Lord came to Moses and Zephora, that that could have been in the presence of God. But here, Moses lets us in on a secret that we haven't known yet. That this angelic, this messenger of the Lord, has been leading the people, has been at the forefront in this moment. 
And there are some theologians, and maybe you're going to hang up out, that take this too far. That there are some theologians that I'll agree with you here, but I actually believe the New Testament has moments where we clearly know who this angel and the Lord, who this messenger of the Lord is. And we learn it from Jude, verse 5. Now, Jude, if you don't remember who Jude is, he is Jesus' brother, brother. They up, they're on the same household. He was born of Mary. And, and his mother, father, of course, being Joseph. And so Jude grew up with Jesus. And he says the following in verse 5, look right before Revelation. Now, I want to remind you, although you once really knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Here we are at the moment where the people of Israel speak are really from Egypt to not Egypt. And as the people go from Egypt to not Egypt, the, the remainder is going to be destroyed. And so I believe pretty significantly that the angel of the Lord here is a pre-incarnate Christ. And he had been leading them to this moment. This moment, this hour where death seems to be in front of them and all around them. And he is going to make a way for them. By the lifting up and the stretching out. And so, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, I believe the second person of the Trinity moves to the rear. Moves to protect. Moves to be between his people and the evil that has come to destroy his people. He is in the gap in one sense. And the Spirit of God follows. And in this sense, the Holy Spirit is often mentioned in the New Testament as the Spirit of life. Follows this messenger of God, I believe the second person of the Trinity, and one group is then in the light, and the other group is in darkness. One group in light, his people, and the other in darkness. This is an incredible thing that's going on here. So here, the group he, this messenger, and the spirit of the Lord are protecting, they are able to live in the light. And the group they are protecting the people from are living in darkness. Doesn't that idea sound familiar? Isn't that how we describe the living the life of faith? And here's the thing. If we had Apple watches, you know, the ones that monitor the heart, on, on an Egyptian at this moment and an Israeli at this moment, they both would be. And they'd probably say, like, solely the corporate to both of them. You know, they, they would technically both have a pulse, both of them would continue living on in the conditions that they face. Both likely have fears in this moment, both groups have worries at this moment, 
both my own groups now, I'm not regular physics already, but one group is infinitely and eternally in a better place than the other because then one group is protected and found in the one of God, protected by the messenger of God and protected by his spirit. And so God has so set up a barrier that neither side can cross. And one, God, one side can see the God who is leading us is also defending us and protecting us from even the face of death. And he's providing the way of a very path of salvation for us to walk in. And the other side just has darkness. The other side just has darkness. So which side are you on this morning? Which side are you on this morning? Have you asked the Lord to save you from the darkness? And here's the crisis. People answer those cries by giving them a way forward. That's a way forward found through Him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one can reach the other side without Him, without His sacrifice, without His protection, without Him being the instrument that, that protects us from our sins and our failures. Our sins being placed on men. Have you received it this morning? If you have, why have you? Why do you live in darkness? You know what's going to happen to those who live in darkness? They're going to be judged by God. The fears of this world and their philosophies, they will be crushed by the God who separates light and darkness, day and night, waters and waters, in order to create a land that becomes rocking and peace. He hovers over us. He guards over us. All those who cry out to him in faith. So leave the darkness. Are you still in it? Leave it. And so in verse 20, we see a supernatural power of God protecting his people. And then in verse 21, we learn something else. God's just not going to use only supernatural forces in the salvation of his people. So now some natural means. Moses stretched out his hands, and a force of wind from the east is going to get to the bridal waters. Now, there's some debate of where this location took place, but understand that go, the wind came from the east, it was the far side of the waters, not the close side, that opened up, we have opened up Ferris. And it's interesting because, well, Moses makes clear that this wind is uh, coming from the east, and then we're headed towards the east to get out of the location, where I learned it was. He talks about the dry ground being gone and that this wind is holding out in the waters. But what would it have been like to walk straight in the face of wind? Would it have been hard? You know, like, you know, we all have those moments when we watch the weather channel during a hurricane. And what do you want? You want a bozo out in a hurricane doing like this thing, right? Walking through. It seems to be that's what's being hinted at. And yes, it's the narrow path of salvation, but it's a difficult path. There's a headwind sometimes. But also, let's just look at this. You're, you're walking in the midst of this. There are two tidewinds on either side of you. Now, you think about advanced civilizations like Japan, and they try to protect themselves from tidal waves. And yet, when a tidal wave came, what happened to Japan? 
It's utterly devastating. I'm trying to look back on Here is this war that it would have been perfectly reasonable if the little actor watch was on the individual. That their heart rate accelerates a little bit as they're being blown away with wind and, and they see these massive forces of water being held back. And isn't that true of our own life? At the times in the walk of faith where we get so caught up in what surrounds us that we forget the faithful God who's protecting us, who's protecting us because he's in the midst of us, and he's protecting us from all manner of attack at this very moment. We forget these things. And so this would have been Make incredible morning to see. And this God who separated the waters from the waters at the very beginning of creation is doing it once again so that as people emerge from the other side, this is why the New Testament Herod uses this for the illustration of baptism, that he's treating a new people into himself. And at the appointed hour, when his people are secure, the rear guard, our Lord, allowed the Egyptians to begin to pursue, to begin to pursue his people to the not in their own destruction. And our Lord, and the title of cloud, he now looks down on these Egyptian forces. And this is one of those moments that's a little bit like that passage with uh, Zipporah and Moses. In the Hebrews, later on in Hebrews, it leads a lot of questions that we just can't fully answer. But there's a few remarkable things that happen. First is the gaze of the Lord, the look of the Lord. Essentially, eyes of the Lord be on these people who have fought him, but hated him and his people absolutely throws his enemies into a panic. And now there was dry ground for Israel. The enemies of God, as we can see in verse 25, have their veils of power. The Lord servants they trusted robbed and destroyed. And the images in the Hebrew near do give room to God possibly actively fighting in the midst of what's taking place. But just like we found out in the scene of Exodus 4, it's, it's, it's hard to, to definitively say what's going on. But even though it was once the narrow path of salvation, it has become the place of judgment. And while we that will be true of this world as well, there is a narrow path available to all of us right now as we breathe and God is bringing out. But that narrow path will one day close. Either at the hour of our death or the hour of the Lord returning and opening it. So we all need to take care to walk in this world with wisdom. And as we can see, for those who, whose hearts are set on evil, their last cries were words that hope that they might be able to flee in the judgment was, that was to come. But it was too late at that point. Here they came to try to conquer, to subject. And subjugate once again these people who were fleeing Egypt, who were running away, and then in their eyes, words on their own desire to be flooded, to flee from the judgment that is to come. But it's then, 
that God tells Moses to stretch out his arms once more over the sea. The same stretched out arms that provided light and protection and deliverance and salvation and a good and narrow path to tread upon, dry ground, now became in the arms stretched out of, ju of judgment for others. It became arms that spoke doom to those who trusted in darkness rather than light. And it led to their demise. As Matthew Henry put this comment in scripture, he said, To let it escape for Israel, and Egypt's way of destruction, who were one and the same. So the eternal salvation God prepares for his people, and the everlasting ruin he has prepared for his enemies are on opposite sides of the same providence. Basically, one of two ways. And look upon the stretched out arms that provide salvation. And as the passage closes, with Israel seeing the lifeless Egyptians, they see the lifeless bodies on the seashore. They see the judgment that has taken place. And Israel knows them the waters as a new creation. The culture they were once a part of, the godless society that had once enslaved them, was no more left to them. They had passed away. And in just trying to find all that took place on that night, the Lord God tells us that the power of the light, the darkness, the suffering of waters, the wind, the angel of the Lord, the pillar of God, not carrying over them, all of it caused what God said he wanted to cause at the very beginning of our chapter in verses 1 through 4. It caused and let's see the glory of God, but also some strength in seeing this obstacle overcome to no longer intimately and devote to God. Their faith has grown, and they're seeing that God can save them. And it's, it's ignited a belief in them. And God wants us in the same way to also see similar things in the hard realms of our own lives. See that God fought for us. See that God made a way for us. See that God did not abandon us, but he was faithfully with us throughout. And there's one more thing I'd love to have seen. If I, if I couldn't see what was going on in verses 19 and 20, what I would want to see the next is Abraham in paradise. We know from the New Testament of the story of the rich man and Lazarus that there seems to be some sense where there's some knowledge that those in heaven have, those who are in the presence of God have over the affairs of the world. And I just can't imagine what this was like for Abraham. If you don't remember, Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham this very moment, this very hour of deliverance, slavery for his descendants, into a new life, a new creation, a new land, I hate grace. He died with faith. He died knowing that God was going to take care of his household. He knew he owned his life. And it just must have been amazing as Abraham is watching the fulfillment of God's promise in this moment. 
What a sight that would have been to see. Nearly modern with God, large his promises to households, not just in our lifetime, but throughout all of history. Many an incredible Savior and deal we have as children of the light. What a wonderful opportunity we have to worship God like this this morning. Can you see how beautiful the story of salvation is for you and I this morning? That had come for God's people. If God's people did not need to fear, God had made a way forward. And the way they were began to mandate the lay for sin, and he did not admit. And it was then he was told to lift up and wouldn't stab and stretch out his arms so that the people of God might be delivered, so that they might have a way forward. And what was set in motion when he known to the enemies of God in this very moment, but they were in darkness, was a way of salvation for those who were children and wives. They were given a narrow path to follow. They got to make sure that it allowed to capture them. No one could overtake them as his children walked in their attack. He protected them by honoring the promises that he made in his word. And when the appointed time was right, not one of them would be lost. God commenced at that hour and I went with the great judgment. A judgment in which he fought as a valiant warrior, and his enemies were cast into the depths, crushed by the same outstretched hand that saved others. And the grace, he has to return to the Lord and Savior who died in the cross for him. And grace to his this morning, which has saved us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, help us. Help us on the narrow path. Continue walking to the land of promise, not to turn back and head towards Egypt. Let us remember that you have saved us in order to free us from the sins that we so tightly clung to in our past life and still at times allow to have power over us in this life, even though you have given us a way of escape. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are the God of Christ for us. We do not need to be anxious. And we do not need to be afraid. As you so protect us that not even death can have a hold of us. We praise you for the gift of salvation and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and pray to confess our sins before the Lord.